Would you join with me in prayer? <coughs> Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your word that never changes, your spirit that's never going to lead us in the wrong directions. And I pray, Lord, help us to be filled with your Holy Spirit today. Help us to be open up to you even as we open your word up to us. We pray that, that in all these things we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to start with a pop quiz, just a thought-provoking pop quiz, because why not? Pop quiz. How would your life be fundamentally different if you didn't trust that God was in control of all things? If you didn't believe that God is sovereign, how would that fundamentally change you on a daily basis? Now, some of you are like, oh, it would change everything. Maybe it would. For a lot of us, even those of us sitting here on a daily basis, it probably wouldn't change that much. I would still cook my hot dog the same way. I would still do my taxes the same way. I would still drive my car the same way. Maybe not. But an awful lot of us spend an awful lot of our time in point of practice, living as though my life more or less depends on me. And on what and what I do, right? Not always. I mean, a lot of times we'll pray for God's help. We'll pray for God's leading. We'll even pray for His divine intervention. And then we'll say Amen, and we'll get to work doing stuff. You know, doing the stuff that actually does stuff, right? Again, I'm not even saying that we we fling God to the wind. We disparage His ability to help us. We say, No, I disregard the Lord. Just don't necessarily always think about him or that we don't necessarily ask him to put things in context i try i don't always succeed but i try that every time i get behind the wheel of my car to pray not only that i get where i'm going safely but especially when i'm praying by myself that that when i'm driving by myself that uh, even how i drive honors god i don't always remember that but it puts my driving in a context it's awfully hard to drive through a stop sign or disregard that red light or to disregard that speed limit if I just got finished praying, Lord, let me honor you in how I'm driving. It's hard not to yell at the guy that didn't use his turn signal. It's hard to disregard using my turn signal. But sometimes we, we just live in such a way that God becomes kind of an intellectual exercise. God isn't the one behind everything because some things quite frankly are just they're physical they're in this place and you want to focus on this place when you're in this place help me out why is this man who ever lived did we get a sense last week how he felt about that basic mindset of making the priorities of this place my main priorities did we get a sense of that last week was he clear was he clear with that first verse where he started talking Pointless, 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 pointless. Was he clear? I think he was clear. I think he was clear. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You can open up your Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 20. He says, My heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. All the stuff I did here. Everything I did that focused on this place. All the stuff that said that the physicality of all this itself somehow matters. All that stuff, all that hard work brought me to despair. For a man may do his work with wisdom and knowledge and skill and then must leave all he owns to someone who hasn't worked for it, who's probably going to be an idiot, right? 
Especially if he was the wisest man who'd ever lived, by definition, the next person was going to be dumber. Yes? Yes, okay. So he says, yeah, this too is meaningless. Poof. Puff of breath. Pointless. Empty. Hollow. This too is a puff of breath and a great misfortune. This is one of those times where the NIV is whitewashing the verse. Because that's not what the word means. It doesn't mean misfortune. I mean, it can, but that's not what the word means. The word means evil. He's like, I, I, it, it bothers me because a man could do his work with wisdom, knowledge, skill, do everything right, and then he has to leave all of it to some doofus who hasn't worked on it, and this is, poof, a puff of breath, and frankly, evil. That's no fun. So why do it? Why do it if, if, if the whole system is broken and it's all stressful and everything you do under the sun is pointless and the whole system is inherently evil? You go, well, I think he's overkilling it. You go, really? That's what this whole book is about? That's what Ecclesiastes is all about. It's all broken and pointless and living within it is evil. Don't do it this way. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving for which he, he labors under the sun? You ever feel anxiety? Okay. What do you get? What do you get for that? All that stress, all those days that you're working and all those nights you can't stop thinking about all the days that you're working. It's all just puff of breath. It's all just pointless. Perky little scamp. I, could, I totally get why some people read Ecclesiastes and say, well, now I'm bummed. I do get it. I do get it. I just keep reminding myself of the point, the argument that this guy is making in his complex argument that is Ecclesiastes. Because even in the midst of that, even when he's going, it's all so annoying and exhausting. He says, what does a man get for all this toil, all this anxiety, all this anxious striving, all this that he does in this place, under the sun? He says in, in verse 24, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. In, in the achievements you've created? No, he's already ripped all that down, right? You write the greatest book in the world and nobody reads it because Ecclesiastes is depressing? You build this amazing temple that people refer to as Solomon's temple because you built such a great temple. You ever seen it? No, it's gone. You work on your family. Solomon's family, real healthy, right? It's like everything that you could possibly do where you say the achievement itself matters. He says, yeah, I tried that. It doesn't. No, I went as far as you could possibly go. No, the achievement doesn't. But the act of doing it what goes on inside of you, why you're doing it, that matters. That matters. That has eternal consequence. This too, I, he says, this too I see is from the hand of God. This is a gift of God. That, that if you have any joy, if you have any ability to find joy in the midst of it, it's because that's coming from the Lord. For without him, who, who can eat or find enjoyment? No matter what you're doing, no matter what you're going through, you can find this empty enjoyment that comes from the accomplishment and it won't last. Or you can lean on what God gives you and that does last. So even in the midst of his argument, he keeps peppering it with, I'm talking about what's under the sun, with the physicality itself being pointless, but that doesn't mean it's all pointless because there is something that does matter. And if it does matter, if we say if God is the foundation, 
if you really truly are building on God in a healthy way, then it's good. And if you're not, no matter what you build, isn't good. If that's true, how important is it that we start by saying, wait, what does God actually want me doing here? I probably ought to really figure that out because there's a lot of things that people have done in God's name that were not good. I would submit that they had to disregard some scripture and some spirit to do that. So maybe how important is it to stop and say, maybe I should live today as if God is absolutely sovereign over what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Since Solomon made a brilliant argument in the Old Testament that that's the only thing that matters in the first place. Right? I'm not talking about sinful things where you go, well, does God want me to murder? You know, no, no, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. There's a whole commandment about that. Nope. You know, I don't, yes, you have to, to seek out God in that, but those are kind of gimmies. What I'm thinking is the things that aren't necessarily gimmies, the things that are open for interpretation. Is this the time to do this or is this not the time to do this? How do you know whether it's the right time? You know, well, clearly God used, gave you a brain. Absolutely. Big fan of the brain. Huge fan of the brain. Use it. I use it nearly every day. And, and that's great. And yet, aren't we told in Psalm 94 that Yahweh knows the thoughts of a man and he knows that they're just <laughs> empty, hollow, brief things? I want to use my gray matter, but I also want to stop and say, wait, blah, blah, blah. what does God want me to do here? What does he want me to do here? There's this great list in Ecclesiastes 3 that everybody loves. They loved it. So much, it, was a top, it was a number one hit back in 1965. The birds took a, was a Pete Seeger song, wasn't it? But uh, a folk song and said, oh, we're going we're gonna to make it a rock song. And everybody in the country went, yeah, number one, we love it. And it was like word for word out of the Bible. It still stands as the oldest song ever to hit number one on the Billboard Top 40 in the United States. There is a time for everything, he says in chapter 3, verse 1. A, a season for every activity under heaven. Anything you could do in this place, yep, there's a time where that's the thing to do in this time. Which is interesting because most of the people, when they actually cite this, when they actually like to point to this, it's because they think at least something on this list is what they wanted to do. And now's the season for it. Because Solomon said something. It's right here in the Bible. It's a little harder to prove that now is the season for that. But they're like, oh, this is great. Because anything I want to do, Solomon says it's okay. As long as it's the right time. And I'm pretty sure now is the right time. There's a, there's a time for everything. Season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born. Time to die. Can't disagree with that. Time to plant. Time to uproot. Time to kill. A time to heal. A time to tear down. A time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones. A time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up searching. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. It's, got, it's great. Anything you want to do, you get to do, right? three basic ways that you can apply this you can say yes there's a time for everything well clearly not that yes there's a time for everything but not you know it's never a time to, to hate never a time to hate you go, really god hates sin you don't well okay well there's that there's a time for everything but you know 
It's, I mean, you clearly shouldn't laugh in a spiritual context. That's for secular things. God hates laughter. That's why he built it in the system. No, it's completely appropriate sometimes. Maybe not other times. Or we can apply it in our own ways. There's a time for everything. Solomon said so. So I get to beat you with a stick because there's surely a time for beating you with a stick and now's the time. Come here, Kent. You know, this, seriously, it was, we do that, don't we? We say, now's the time because I decided it. Or we could sit there and go, you know, God said in his timing, almost anything, there's, almost anything can be the right time in his timing. So maybe I should figure out his timing. Maybe I should bounce things off of God. The list isn't really valid. The list is totally valid and I get to decide it. Or the list is totally valid and God gets to decide it. Which camp do you fall in? I know which camp I want to fall in. In part because I remember. Yahweh knows the thoughts of a man. He knows their their soap bubbles. So I absolutely want to use my God-given gray cells but I really want to make sure that I'm actively seeking God to invest some critical mass and some substance to my soap bubble. I don't want to just be lost in that. Even the most intense beliefs that people hold, they can still have mediated by God. I think back to the Jewish Essenes or the, or the Mennonite Amish, and I think they're both adamant, adamant pacifists, right? And yet built into the theology of both of those groups, is that Yahweh still gets to lead his people into battle. Menno was very clear about that when he was writing. The Essenes were very clear about that. There's a time where God himself might say, take up arms, in which case you do. It's just, y'all don't get to decide that. Only God does. And I'm taking that really, really seriously if I'm a Mennonite, or really seriously if I'm an Essene. But even that, it's still a matter of, I'm trusting God's timing, even on something that I am building into the system so much that, they're, that they're, were, they're known for that from us. There's a time for war and a time for peace, and even a Mennonite knows that. There's a time for love and a time for hate, and even the most liberal secularist knows that. It's just that far too often we remove the very mechanism that helps us to truly understand what the time is. We say there's absolutely a time for all these different things, but we remove God from the equation to figure that out. We remove God's sovereignty, his daily sovereignty, and that means that instead of being something where Solomon is reminding us that all these things are under God's sovereignty, we live, practically speaking, as if none of it is, because it's all fair game. Which is precisely why a Christian, liberal, conservative, doesn't matter, good Christian can absolutely hate all those haters who hate, who shouldn't hate, and we can hate them for hating like that. And feel like they're being biblical, because there's a time for hate, right? We should love everybody, except, of course, those people whose love is, you know, messed up. We shouldn't love those people. We get to choose when to love and hate. And a really good biblical-sounding Christian can point to Solomon and say, look, I'm being biblical here when I decide these things. And we can be extremely pious. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Right? Clearly talking about social distancing during a time of global pandemic. Right? (laughs) You laugh. But can't both sides go to that verse and say, there's a time to refrain from embrace. There's a time to embrace. Well, there's a time to refrain from it. Well, this is the time to embrace. This is the time to refrain. Couldn't they? And if you think I'm being ridiculous, 
Google it. Look at how many times in the last two years people have cited this verse for that topic as if Solomon is writing about COVID-19. And what he meant was, I'm right. It's in the Bible. Come on, even the movie Footloose, 1980s, used Ecclesiastes to prove, by goodness, your own Bible says there's a time to dance. Ever see the movie? Ah, so good. So amazing. And it's there's this wonderful time where he just has this huge thing where he says, even Solomon says there's a time to dance. Everybody goes, oh, yes, Pastor John Lithgow, in your face. You have no right to tell us there's a time to refrain from... There's nothing in Solomon's list that would suggest there's a time to refrain from that. It's a time to dance. So we get to all sexy dance because Solomon said so in your own Bible. Interestingly... It's amazing how many times they're like, why, you seem to think this is going to go bad places. You go, didn't all the characters that did that go bad places? Well, yes, but not because of the dancing. Well, maybe. (laughs) In our culture today, what's interesting is that we sit there and we say, Solomon said so in your Bible, and if you tell us it's wrong, you're bad. You're immoral. Because we love to use these loan words from earlier cultures. And I have to say it that way. Because I think in English we have a lot of loan words, like gentleman, which does not mean that you were born of noble birth. It means you act like we expect people who have been genteel, norm, born of noble birth. We hope that they act like that. We say, we want you to act like a little gentleman, right? We also, in American English, use a lot of loan words like morality or right and wrong. But I have to call those loan words because they are not part of our culture anymore. They're, they're focusing on this sense of morality, but we have drained the core meaning of what those words mean. And we, may, we mean them to use other things. We leave them literally as these empty soap bubbles, right? That you can fill with whatever you want. Right is whatever we believe. And wrong is anything that's against whatever we believe. Right is what is 1950s conservatism. Right is 2020's liberality. It's wrong for you to sleep with somebody before you're married. It's wrong for you to tell somebody that somehow it's wrong for them to sleep with somebody before they're married. Morality means something different. Right and wrong means something different than they meant originally in Greek thought and I would argue in scripture. The concept of right and wrong were about emulating the values and the virtues of God himself infused into you as a person. There are core virtues. There's a way that God's character was invested into you when you were sculpted as a human being. Right is doing what God is sharing. Wrong is not doing that. Morality is when you live up to the virtues that you were sculpted to be and to live out. Does that make sense? Morality is something bigger than us. But today we tend to turn that around. We tend to say you are virtuous if you follow what we have decided is morality. You are moral if you do what our culture or subculture says is right or wrong. If you go contrary to what our culture or subculture say is right or wrong, you are wrong or right. You are immoral if you go contrary to this. 
it should be that our virtue is shackled to our actions, our morality is shackled to what God infused us with, what is right and wrong. Instead, our morality, our virtues, right and wrong, are shackled to our culture. And what our culture says is right and wrong. And because our culture, or subculture, because they change all the time, it's constantly changing, by definition, our morality is constantly changing. What was absolutely morally right 50 years ago and morally wrong 50 years ago, are those still absolutely morally right and morally wrong in our country? They aren't in our country. But I would argue that morality, by definition, is bigger than us. It has to be, or else it's not morality anymore. It's just norms. Norms are fine. There are certain things that we do as a culture that we consider normal. And I'm like, okay. But don't call them morality, because morality, by definition, has to be bigger than that. Social mores instead of genuine morals. So again, 60 years ago, it would be immoral to tell somebody about... It would be immoral for people to be engaged in sexual sin. Today, it is considered immoral to tell people that they are in sexual sin. Because what we've done is we've taken the European concept of morality, right and wrong, we've taken the Oriental concept of shame and honor, we've divested them of any core meaning in and of themselves, and then we've plugged in our social norms into them. Which is why we can look at somebody and say, Oh, how dare you tell her that what she did was immoral. You're slut-shaming her. And shaming someone is the worst thing you can do. You're a bad, immoral person for making somebody else feel guilty. We have no sense of the morality itself, but we use moral terms. We have no sense of what should or should not be shameful, and yet we still use those terms. We take brackets that are true in other cultures, we move them over here, suck all of everything out of them, stick our own stuff in it and say, this, I'm going to use these terms because I want you to feel guilty when you break my social norm. So I'm going to use these things that were designed to be built on something bigger than us. And I'm going to shackle to something much smaller than us. Things that change. I'm going to remove God from the equation. And I'm going to look at you and I'm going to say, how dare you judge someone else? Who are you to judge? You don't have any kind of authority. The only authority we have is the plurality around us. And that changes all the time. So the very thing that you get lambasted for 20 years ago, you'll be lauded for today. The very thing that you'll be lauded for today, you'll be lambasted 20 years from now for. Because who are you to judge? Which is why I come back to, maybe Scripture should be the judge. Maybe God should be the judge. Maybe the Spirit within us should be the judge. Because without God as the foundation, it's all malleable. And things like Solomon's list of seasons become up for grabs, open for interpretation, an easy justification for anything you want, which I believe is not what Solomon intended. I don't think Solomon is giving us this list saying, hey, hang your hat on this so that you never really feel guilty. Does anything else in the book of Ecclesiastes suggest that in any way, shape, or form, Solomon is trying to give anybody an easy out? 
the entire book. The reason people are complaining about the book is because you go, he's saying, there is no easy out. Y'all guilty. We're all messed up. I'm messed up. Trust me, I did everything as good as you can do, and I'm messed up. We're all messed up. There is no easy out. Y'all guilty. The idea that this list is him going, nah. I don't see it. Solomon isn't saying that. What he's saying is in God's timing, in God's leading, almost anything and everything can happen, and ain't none of us going to last very long. So, you want to immerse yourself in mirth? Okay, but there's going to be a season of grief. You want to immerse yourself at saying peace at all costs. There's going to be a time where there must be war. Everything you might say under the sun, well, this is what it's all about, or this is never acceptable. He says, nope, there's going to be a season that undermines everything you're being pedantic about. Everything. It's all, ironically, to Solomon, this place is changeable. So don't build anything based on this place. Which is ironic, because everybody goes, yeah, it's all changeable. Nothing's really good or bad, because he gives us a list. And Solomon's like, I'm giving you a list to say you need to base this on something bigger than the stuff on the list. You have to have a morality based on something stronger than what you see right around you. The thing that makes all this work is not that war is inherently always wrong and peace is inherently always good. The reason things are right or wrong is God. Starting with, ending with God, walking with God. I have seen the burden God has laid on men, he says, under the sun. And he's made everything beautiful in its time. Not that that means that everything's okay. Everything is okay in any time that we want to justify its okayness. But saying at one point or another, God directs us to almost everything in this list in his timing. He makes it beautiful in its proper time. Because he says here, he's also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they can't fathom what he's done from the beginning to the end. He gives us this concept of infinity, but we can't understand it. We, we have this glimmer of this sense of, of eternity, but we haven't got a clue how it works. Because... Psalm 94, our thoughts are soap bubbles. How is a soap bubble going to figure out eternity? How on earth could you possibly chase after the wind enough to get something substantial? How can we possibly comprehend that? In his letter to the Colossians, Paul sings an early hymn of the church, and he sings, He is before all things, speaking of Christ, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, and is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He is sovereign. He is sovereign over all of this, all of us, all of everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The fullness of God poured into and pouring out of God made flesh. How could we ever comprehend what that's like? Could we? Is there any way for us to possibly comprehend God in his fullness, in humanness. Paul also wrote his letter to the Ephesians saying, I pray, in chapter 3, verse 16, that out of his glorious riches God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Because unlike Solomon... We, as Christ's body, have Christ's Holy Spirit within us. We have Christ's Spirit. We have access to a better discernment than the wisest man who ever lived had access to. I'm not the wisest man that ever lived, but I have the Holy Spirit living within me. Solomon didn't. 
praise God, why wouldn't I use that? Why wouldn't I start with that? If I genuinely have God's Holy Spirit within me, if I genuinely have God's wisdom that doesn't change before me, why, why wouldn't I start with these? Is that logical? Is that good critical thinking? Well, whatever you do, don't, smart, don't start with the right stuff. Don't start by looking at the blueprints. Don't start with trying to figure out how things actually work. Paul continues, he says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, all the people of God, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses understanding, that surpasses knowledge. Use your little gray cells, but realize they're finite. And ultimately, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I ask, is there any way that we could possibly understand this concept of God's fullness filling a fleshly day? Yeah. Actually, you should have a glimmer. I'm not saying you become divine, but shouldn't you be filled with God? Or was Paul's prayer kind of stupid? Shouldn't we be filled to the point of overfluting? Shouldn't we be overflowing God's fullness into those around us? Shouldn't we be filled with God's Holy Spirit? Shouldn't we be in communication with God? Shouldn't we be connected? Shouldn't we? So that we can at least begin to discern what we could never discern under the sun on our own? Shouldn't we? Or do we sit there and go, well, I mean, I'm not Jesus, so no. Under the sun, if we focus on this place, just on this place, Ecclesiastes 3 is a trap because that list is anything you want it to be, literally anytime you want it to be. If we start and we end with our own morality based on our own malleable structure, then everything changes and all the bets are off. I'm not even being like doom and gloom. I'm saying literally, that's how it's set up. It's, if morality is malleable and morality is how you decide whether or not this is the time for this, it's whatever you feel like. But if we're ambassadors of eternity and we root ourselves in God's word and we, we connect ourselves to God's spirit and we have him flowing through us and we don't root ourselves so much in this nation or that one, this movement or that one, this party or that one, this season or that one, if we realize that all of these things are temporal and shifting, but God isn't, if we start with that, if we build on things that are unchanging, then our thoughts are no longer just... Our thoughts are God's thoughts. We're filled with God's thoughts. We're filled with God's understanding. And that's never insubstantial. There's good reason why Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, pray continually. Or while the writer of Hebrews says, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Not just often, not just regularly, but continually, consistently, all the time. In his famous book, um, uh, The Practice of the Presence of God, 17th century monk Brother Lawrence said, we should establish ourselves in a sense of God's presence by continually conversing with him. Interacting with him all the time. Pretend for a moment, and I know you have to pretend, so let's go to imagination land, okay? Pretend for a moment that God were actually in the room with you. Would you speak with him? Would you listen to him? 
If, I know, I know, we're in pretend world. If he were actually in the room with you, wouldn't you interact with him? Yes or no? Who says yes? Raise your hands. Who says no? Wise. Okay, tricksy question because he's always in the room with you. Which means that you spend the vast majority, if you're anything like me, you spend the vast majority of your life ignoring the most important person in the room. And I don't ever want to do that. And I do it all the time. According to the National Science Foundation, the average person has 12,000 to 60,000 thoughts in a given day. 85% of which are negative. 95% of which are repeats from some of the thoughts you had yesterday. What would happen? What would happen if you took the majority, not half of that, third, a quarter of those 60,000 thoughts and made them consciously interactive prayer with God? Where you're speaking to God, listening to God, leaning on God, asking for direction from God, lifting up praises to God. Would your thought life be different if instead of spending 60,000 thoughts giving God maybe 20 of them, if instead you spent 20,000 thoughts thinking of God, 30,000 thoughts, would that change you on a daily basis? Paul seems to think so. In Romans, he says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You can transform your thought life. Let that happen. Then you're going to be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. Then you will be able to know the seasons. But you actually have to change. Which is interesting because Peter in 1 Peter 4 says, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And I've always thought that was fun because Paul says, pray so that you can have a healthy, renewed mind. Peter says, make sure you have a healthy, renewed mind so that you can pray. So which is it? It's almost like your thought life and your prayer life were designed to be in tandem, right? Like you were designed to make sure that you're thinking and praying and praying and thinking and thinking and praying and praying and thinking and inundating everything with that. Because James tells us that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Why? Because you're connected to God. You're listening to the most important person in the room. Jesus talks about being connected to the vine. How many different analogies do we want to use? You're grounding yourself in something bigger than you, and it's not just an intellectual exercise. Even if, at its worst, you just want to say, the only thing it changes is you, it still changes you, which is cool. In Luke 13, Jesus says, you know, whenever you guys, whenever you're brought before synagogues, rulers, authorities, don't worry about how you're going to defend yourselves or what you're going to say, because the Holy Spirit will teach you at the time what you should say. Listen to God. I have little doubt that when Artaxerxes looks at Nehemiah and says, what do you want? And Nehemiah prayed that this was at least part of that. He's like, give me words. Okay. I have little doubt. Or Paul said in Ephesians, pray in the spirit at all occasions and with all kinds of prayers. When? All the time. With this in mind, I want you to be pray and I want you to be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Pray that God gives me words. Pray that God gives me the right attitude. Pray that God changes me. Pray, pray. There's a consistency to this action 
that is so important in the inconsistency of this world. Again, James says, is any of you in trouble? Pray. Is anyone happy? Pray. Is anyone sick? Pray. Okay, actually what he says is, if anyone is in trouble, he should pray. If anyone is happy, let him sing songs of praise. If any one of you is sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over them. Ultimately, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. No matter what's going on in life, our connection to God is a constant. Or if I really want to phrase it in the phraseology of this particular sermon, no matter what season is going on right now, our connection to God is a constant. Is this a season of mourning? Then pray, seek God. Is this a season of happiness? Cool, pray, seek God. Is this a season of sickness? Pray, seek God. Are you feeling supremely confident right now in your life? Good, pray, seek God, because you want to make sure that you don't just run off and do your own thing. Do you feel supremely unconfident? You feel totally inadequate? Then pray and seek God, right? Ask for him to equip you and empower you. Start with God to discern the season. Walk with God to deal with the season, whatever the season may be. Because Solomon's point here is that the seasons are malleable. They come and they go here under the sun. Everything's got a season at one point or another. So what doesn't change? Everything changes here. But what can you ground yourself in that doesn't shift? What lodestone can you connect yourself with that can you can judge your directions and your assessments by that's not going to change? What can you trust in this life when everything around you is just poof, empty wind? What has substance? Trust the one thing with substance, the one unchanging, unchangeable, constant in all of this. Start, walk, end with your Creator with his word that doesn't change, with his direction that will never give you wrong direction, with his priorities, with his virtue that he has infused in you, with his character he sculpted you in. Ecclesiastes 3.14, Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. In response to everything he just said about all the things that never last, he's like, everything God does that endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. That's the constant. That's the constant. And if we don't start with that, then our morality is just... And we can stomp our feet at the right and wrong of everybody else in the world. And we will never convince them because their right and wrong is different than your right and wrong because it was never about morality in the first place. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word that doesn't change, for your truth that doesn't change. How we do it, how we live it out, this particular instance, that particular need, those change all the time. That it's true, that we live it out, that we must live it out, never changes. So I pray, Lord, help us to trust you and to live as ambassadors, not just of the stuff that we like, but ambassadors of a completely different way of prioritizing this place. Help us to love those around us because it's part of your character and thus part of our character. Help us to remember what you've done for us and to live that for everyone else. We give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.